quite the compelling image. Samson, captured hero of Israel, bringing down the temple of his enemies on their heads. Yeah, you are still in the Mennonite church. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie version advertised here, but it's a story that could easily be imagined in the realm of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the flawed, tragic hero, superhero who is undone by his hubris and addictions, but regains his strength at the end of the story just in time to slay the foe and save the day. Has everything except the magic flying hammer and the snarky sidekicks, um, but we can write those in in post, I'm sure. As you no doubt recall from the book of Judges, in the early days of the nation of Israel, they had no centralized government or monarchy. They were a collection of loosely related tribes, um, and in times of need, they rallied together under powerful personalities they called judges. Samson is presented as the prototypical judge. His birth is foretold by an angel, and his parents raised him by a very strict set of rules. The promise was that as long as he kept those rules, including never cutting his hair, as long as he kept those rules, God would bless him with great strength. But if he ever had his hair cut, that would break the connection with God and he would lose his strength. So Samson grew into this massive and violent man with luxurious romance novel hair. Um, this is just a poetic license, perhaps. He was kind of into the role of judge. He was kind of protecting Israel against its enemies, but mostly it seems like he's the biggest guy in the whole country, and so he's going around doing whatever it is that he wants to do, um, mostly just killing whoever got in his way. And it just happened that most of the time, the ones who got in his way were the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. Long story short, Samson eventually gives away his secret. His hair gets cut, and he loses his strength when he's captured by the Philistines. They chain him up, and they blind his eyes, and then take him back to their capital city to show him off. But by the time he got there, his hair had started to grow back. So the climax of the story, the Philistines bring him on stage at this massive party in their temple building, and Samson prays to God to restore his strength this one last time so that he can take his revenge. And his strength returns, he pushes against the temple pillars, the whole thing comes crashing down. And so Superman, I mean Tony Stark, I mean Jon Snow, I mean Samson, he sacrifices his life to take out the enemy and save his people. It's not hard, it's hard not to tell this story like a great victory. That's how Samson was presented to me as a kid. This is a hero tale. He was flawed, yes, he disobeyed God, but in the end, he redeemed himself by killing all the bad guys. Makes for some excellent Sunday school lessons. <laughs> but really, this story is a tragedy. I'm impressed by this image of Samson, by the German painter Lovis Corinth. At the end of Samson's journey, when he's finally ready to ask for help, he doesn't ask to get his sight back. He asks for his strength to return. Like, in that moment, he could have asked for anything. His life was a testament to the power of faith that God was eager to do things for him and with him. But he asked for his strength back. He had no vision. He had no hope for something better than revenge. So I don't think we're meant to celebrate this final act of strength, but we're to lament all that Samson could have been, but never was able to see. That's how I read Samson's story in the book of Judges, as a powerful par parable of the failure of the tribes of Israel. They had lots of power, 
available to them. They had resources. That wasn't the issue. What they lacked was vision. To succeed as a people, they had to have something more to work for than survival and revenge. Like Samson, without vision, all their power could do was bring more destruction, literally, on themselves and everyone around them. As the proverb says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, with the election of this past week, you may be tempted to hear some of this as a thinly veiled critique of the current political situation around us. Don't read too much into that, unless you want to. My observation is that ancient Israel isn't the only nation that struggles from time to time with questions of leadership and vision and unity. And in those times, the theme of hope is particularly important. Part of the reason that Eileen and I chose this theme, Profiles of Hope, for this fall is because this is election season. Elections tend to focus on the problems facing our society, as they should. And there really are a lot of things wrong. I mean, Rick gave quite the list this morning of all the, the ways that we need peace, all the ways that the world is lacking. There are more problems than solutions, it seems. And so in this series, Eileen and I hoped that by talking about hope for two months, we would get a regular reminder of the good in the world, of the people who work to make the world a better place, and the possibility that we have a role to join in with them to bring hope and light to the world around us. So eight weeks in, here we are at the end of hope, and I have to ask, how's that working for you? I mean, personally, I have very much appreciated all the stories and examples that have been shared. As the days are getting shorter and darker, it's been life-giving to gather each week with the specific focus of looking for the light. But I have to admit, there's always a little voice somewhere in the back of my head, usually starts beaking off around Monday mornings, whispering, hey, is that all you got? I mean, hope's nice and all, but the story that preacher told was from a long time ago. Have you read the news this morning? Has anything really changed? Can anything change? Seriously, what's a little bit of hope going to do against whatever the crisis of the day is? Is hope enough? It seems mighty frail compared to the violent power of the world. I'm not the only one who's had that thought a little bit throughout this series, right? I imagine that more than a few of us have been thinking that, well, hope is nice and all as a starting point, but what we really need is, you can fill in that blank for yourself, whatever your diagnosis is, we really need stronger economy. We need more money if we're going to be able to change things. We really need a political revolution. We have to fix the structures that focus all the power in the hands of so few. Or we really need spiritual revival. We need to get back to the values of strong faith however you'd fill that blank in. Maybe your concerns are more personal. What you really need is a new job, to feel better physically, to fix that relationship, to have some relief from whatever it is that's stressing you out. In light of those problems, hope is good, but what I really want is for things to be better. What I really want is solutions, results. Does hope get results? There's a good question. To that, I give you the story of Gideon. Like Samson, Gideon's story is found in the book of Judges, and it also begins with a visit from an angel. But beyond that, Gideon and Samson are pretty much opposites. I struggled to come up with some good pictures, artist renderings of Gideon. It's not that he's an obscure character, it's just that he's not as sexy as Samson. 
The narrator describes Gideon as a bit of a coward, hiding out from Israel's enemies. When the angel shows up and tells Gideon that God has chosen him to lead Israel's army, he tells the angel that she's got the wrong man. He's the least important person in his family, and his family is the least important family in their tribe. He's just another guy. What does he know about leading an army? So Gideon sets up a series of tests for God designed to prove that he's not the one. But God is insistent, Gideon, you are the one. So eventually, Gideon gives in and starts to call together the army. Now, the people recognize that the threat is great. The enemy is coming to them. And so they respond by sending 32,000 men to fight in the army. But God tells Gideon that 32,000 is somehow too large of an army, that they can't possibly win with this many soldiers. So now it's God's turn to test Gideon as the number of soldiers goes down and down until there's only 300 of them left. Now, maybe like me, you've seen a lot of movies, and so you assume that 300 means that these are 300 Spartans, the elite fighting force. And maybe they were good soldiers, we don't know, but that's not how the story plays out. Instead of strapping on their swords and shields and the era-appropriate capes, Gideon hands each of his soldiers a shofar, which is a signal horn, and a clay jar with a torch inside it. Most of you have been in this Sunday school class and you know how the story goes. That night, the 300 soldiers with their shofars, jars, and torches, they spread out on the hilltops around the valley where the enemy was, was camped. A massive army, pitch darkness. Then on Gideon's signal, they all blow their shofars and smash their pitchers and held their torches high. The enemies were totally caught off guard by this. They assumed that they were under attack in the middle of the night. They thought they must be surrounded by a great army. And so they start to panic and try to fight their way out. Except that the only people there were to fight were the other people in their army. So in the confusion, they wound up fighting one another. And so the enemy was defeated. Gideon's 300 had to do no fighting at all that night. Cool story. My inner 10-year-old is loving this sermon so far. But I got to say, it must have felt absolutely crazy to the soldiers in Gideon's, Gideon's army at the time. I mean, if it had been me, very impressive to do this with just 300 of us. But it would have been smart to have some backup, right? I mean, we can still send out the 300 or only give them the pitchers and torches, but we have 31,700 other soldiers willing to fight. Let's just keep those guys around in case things don't go according to plan. But that, of course, is the point of the story. God chose weakness over strength. The vulnerability was intentional. Now, the lesson that I remember from Sunday school is that by doing it this way, God got all the credit. And that's valid. There is no Samson-type strongman in this story. God is the obvious hero. But as an adult, I doubt that God actually cares that much about who gets the credit. So I think the slightly deeper point here is that God isn't interested in the size of your army or how much firepower you have. God isn't interested in the pedigree of your leader or how impressive their strength is. Because the path that God is leading people on is built on a different kind of strength. God is building a different kind of empire. God has a different vision of what success looks like. The point of the story is not about how good God is at playing the power game. The point is that God is inviting us to play a different kind of game entirely. So, back to the question. Does hope get results? 
I suppose that depends on the kind of results you're looking for. We'll hope, win our wars, heal our, heal our politics, solve the climate crisis, and bring economic stability. We'll hope, fix our relationships, resolve our stress, and bring us healing. We'll hope, get us the things that we want. I don't think it will. If that's the goal, then hope is not enough. But I don't think hope is intended to get us to our preferred vision of the future, but rather to change that vision, to change how we hold the things that we think we want. In principle, Gideon and Samson both had the same hope. They both wanted to defeat Israel's enemies so that their people could live in peace. And Samson was sure he knew how to get there. And he refused to give that up when the path turned. He was so invested in this one particular outcome that he kept on banging his head against it over and over until he literally killed himself trying to make it happen. Gideon also wanted to defeat the enemy, but he held this vision of what that might look like. He held that loosely. When the path went away he wasn't expecting, he didn't try to force it back into his, into his way, he went with it. In biblical terms, he chose to put his hope and trust in God rather than in his own vision. God's way made no sense. It seemed to run counter to the project that Gideon was working on. But rather than insisting on his way, he embraced God's vision and learned to see differently. That's an oversimplification, of course. In our lives, the choice is rarely that straightforward as my way or God's way. But I think there's something in there for us, the invitation to loosen our grip just a little bit on what it is that we think we want. That's the potential of hope to change the way that we see, to move towards a new vision of what we think we want and how we might get there. We read earlier from the Apostle Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians. There's a whole lot to unpack in there, but for today I'll say two things. First of all, note that this is in plural form. This is written to a community. We are afflicted but not crushed. We do not despair. We do not lose heart. I bet that at least a handful of us heard this text earlier and we felt that burden of guilt. Oh no, I'm not supposed to lose heart, but I do that all the time. Well, there's one more thing I'm failing at. I'm with you. Let that go. This isn't on you as an individual. As a person, I lose heart. I get crushed. I feel despair. I abandon hope. That's reality. Some days are like that. But as a community, we do not lose heart. On the day when I am crushed, a whole bunch of others are not. And so they take heart for me when I cannot. So if you're feeling hopeless today, that's okay. You've come to the right place. As a community, we hold you in our collective hopes so that whenever you're ready to pick up the hope again, your hope will be there waiting for you. So hope is a communal, communal effort not an individual responsibility. The Lone Ranger thing didn't work out so well for Samson. You don't need to try it either. In the shelter of each other, that's where hope lives. Second, and this is Paul's main point in this text, the vulnerability is intentional. We have this treasure in jars of clay. There's the callback to Gideon's story where God turned the power game on its head and won the victory not with swords, but with music and cooking utensils. And that was just a taste. 
God's, God really was calling the people to a new kind of empire, a new kind of community that was built not around domination and defeating and winning all these wars, but built around sacrificial love. It took a long time to get there, but that embodiment was lived out in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate earthen vessel who gave up power, who made himself vulnerable and laid down his life for those that he loved. Does Jesus get results? Well, yes, but what, does the, what do those look like? Not the kind that his people wanted, not at first. But Paul says what they found in the decades after Jesus is that this path does indeed lead to life. They didn't get what they were hoping for, but the way of Jesus changed what they wanted, changed what they were hoping for. It changed their hopes towards what really mattered so that they could see what really mattered. I'm, I probably overused this quote from James Finley, but some of us are starting to get it. If we are absolutely grounded in the absolute love of God that protects us from nothing, even as it sustains us in all things, then we can face all things with courage and tenderness and touch the hurting places in others and in ourselves with love. What I want, what I'm hoping for, usually falls into that first category. I want, I want God to protect me from things, to fix things, to give comfort and happiness to me and to those I love. And that's not, that's not a selfish thing. That's, that's pretty normal. That's what I, I want to be comfortable. I want there to be peace. But that's not what the offer is. That's not how God works. Not because God wants to deny us those things, but because that's not where the fullness of life is. The fullness, fullness of life comes through earthen vessels, through the vulnerability, through leaning into this second part, the trust of love. That's the path to, to touch the hurting places in others and in ourselves with love. That's the fullness of life. That's the hope. I want to close this series with one last story of hope in action. Some of you will know this true story. This particular version is often found on the shelves at 10,000 villages. Wangari's Trees of Peace, a true story from Africa. Wangari lives under an umbrella of green trees in the shadow of Mount Kenya in Africa. She watches the birds in the forest where she and her mother go to gather firewood for cooking. And she helps harvest the sweet potatoes, sugarcane, and maize from the rich soil. Wangari shines in school. When she grows tall like the trees in the forest, she wins a scholarship to study in America. Six years later, her studies over, she earns a PhD. Wangari returns to her Kenya home and sees a change. What has happened, she wonders. Where are the trees? Wangari sees women bent from hauling firewood miles and miles from home. She sees barren land where no crops grow. And where are the birds? Thousands of trees have been cut down to make room for buildings, but no one planted new trees to take their place. Will all of Kenya become a desert, she wonders as her tears fall. Wangari thinks about the barren land. I can begin to replace some of the lost trees here in my own backyard, one tree at a time. She starts by planting nine seedlings. Watching the seedlings take root gives Wangari the idea to plant more, to start a farm for baby trees, a nursery, 
In the open space, she plants row after row of the tiny trees. Next, Wangari convinces the village women that planting trees is a good thing. She gives each one a seedling. Our lives will be, will be better when we have trees again. You'll see. We are planting the seeds of hope. The women spread out over their village, planting tiny trees in long rows, like a green belt stretching over the land. The government men laugh. Women can't do this, they say. It takes trained foresters to plant trees. The women ignore the laughter and keep planting. Wangari pays them a small amount for each seedling still living after three months, their first earnings ever. Word travels like wind rustling through leaves about the green returning to Wangari's village. Soon other women in other villages and towns and cities in Kenya are planting long rows of seedlings too. But the cutting continues. Wangari stands tall as an oak to protect the old trees still remaining. We need a park more than we need an office tower. The government men disagree. Wangari blocks their way, so they hit her with clubs. They call her a troublemaker and put her in jail. And still she stands tall. Right is right, even if you're alone. But Wangari is not alone. Talk of the trees spreads over all of Africa like ripples in Lake Victoria. More women hear the talk and plant even more seedlings in longer and longer rows. The seedlings take root and grow tall until there are over 30 million trees where there were none. The umbrella green of Kenya returns. Women walk tall, their backs straight. For now they can gather firewood closer to home. The land is no longer barren. Sweet potatoes, sugarcane, and maize grow again in the rich red earth. The whole world hears of Wangari's trees and of her army of women who planted them. And if you were to climb to the very top of Mount Kenya today, you would see millions of trees growing below you and the green Wangari brought back to Africa. Wangari Matai was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 because of her contribution to world peace through the Green Belt Movement. In African tradition, a tree is a symbol of peace. So it was fitting that when notified of winning the award, one of Wangari's first acts was to plant a Nandi flame tree at the base of Mount Kenya. In her acceptance speech, she said, we are called to assist the earth, to heal her wounds, and in the process, heal our own. Indeed, embrace the whole creation in all of its diversity, beauty, and wonder. That's a long way from where we started with the story of Samson. And of course, that's the point. May God fill our earthen vessels with hope, and may that hope grow into the fullness of life. <laughs>